Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover now the entire chapter of 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to entitle this section of scripture, Timothy is taught to be a good teacher. Our context is this, Paul has been explaining to Timothy proper conduct in the church in chapter 3, chapter 2 actually, in chapter 3 he talks about the qualification of elders, which is a church a ministry gift for the church, and then he talks at the end of the chapter about qualifications for deacons, which is likewise. So we go now to starting in verse 1, 1 Timothy 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, before we go any further, let's look at this phrase, later times. I think in some versions it has last days. I've got the New American Standard here. Later times, that does not necessarily mean the end of the world. Most of the time, in fact, it means the end of the Jewish age. And I'm going to take that view here that it's talking about the end of the Jewish age because Paul is exhorting Timothy about something that will happen to him, namely these Gnostic Jewish heretics that he's been talking about in the letter, and he's going to continue to talk about all through this letter. And in 2 Timothy 2, he's dealing with specific cases of heresy that he wants Timothy to deal with. That's not the end of the world. That's right now. Right now, at the end of the Jewish age, as the, new, as the new covenant messianic age is about to start. So let's take it from the beginning here. But the Spirit explicitly says, well, when did the Spirit explicitly say this, that some will fall away from the faith? Well, here's some options from the commentator Ellison. It could be referring to Old Testament prophecy. It could be that Paul had a direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's the second option. For example, Paul obviously had an inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he talked about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes forth, the falling away. And remember now in 1 Timothy 4.1, we're talking about Paul saying the Spirit explicitly says that some will fall away from the faith. Is he talking about the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2 where he must have had a revelation because nobody else knows where he got this, this, this teaching about the man of sin. So that could be it. He's talking about the Spirit explicitly. He had told Paul himself. It could be that the Spirit had used prophetic words from other Christians. This is mentioned by Ellison Gill, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown, other prophecies. Or it could be, as Gill and J Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, as the fourth option, Jesus explicitly had taught that there was going to be a falling away in the later times, the, the end of the Jewish age. Because Jesus had said in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24.10, then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. And, of course, this assumes that the Olivet Discourse is, a, is talking about the end of the Jewish age because the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus said, not one, temple, not one stone will be left on another of the temple, and all these things will take place before this generation passes away. So I'm assuming a preterist interpretation of Matthew 24. And in that Olivet Discourse, that was supposed to take place before that generation that that was existing when Jesus taught, many would fall away and betray one another. So there was going to be a great apostasy right before AD 70, and Paul is writing, what, around 62 or so now, right before AD 70? And so he's telling Timothy, hey, in these last days here, in these later times, some are going to fall away from the faith. The Spirit explicitly said that, and I think this is what he meant. He's saying Jesus explicitly said it. Here's some other scriptures written by New Testament authors alluding to what Jesus had said about this apostasy that's going to, that's going to come at the end of the Jewish age. 2 Peter 3.3, 3, know this first of all, Peter says, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Now, I know futurists always say that's the end of the world. 
there's always going to be mockers, folks, always. But these particular mockers happened before that generation that was existing when Jesus spoke happened. So that's the mockers that I believe that Paul, that Jesus was referring to and Paul is referring to and Peter's referring to. Now, how about John? 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. This is not exactly a falling away verse, but it's a last hour verse. And notice it's, it is the last hour, not it will be the last hour. It is. At the time that John was writing, it was the last hour. The last time. The last hours of the Jewish rabbinic apostate order that killed Jesus and persecuted the prophets. Jude 1.18 says this, they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. In the last time there will be mockers. I believe that's talking about at the end of the Jewish age when the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that ungodly cabal murdered Jesus. And they were persecuting Christians all the way up, mocking the Christians, doing anything they could to destroy them, carrying them before the synagogues, as Jesus said. Killing them, throwing them in the prison, and yes, a lot of the churches are going to have trouble with that, and they're going to fall away. And Paul says, don't let that happen to you, Timothy. These people who fall away from the faith, they will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They will be seduced by the devil and his angels. And notice, uh, let me make this point, too. We often say the devil deceived me. Well, you know, I don't think Lucifer, because Lucifer, Satan... He could only be in one place at one time. He's not deceiving everybody all at once, all over the, the world. Satan, Satan's on me. Satan, you know, you hear Christians say that all the time. Well, what they mean, what they really theologically precisely mean is a demon who is operating under the command of Satan is harassing me. I just read a story of a, of a well-known missionary leader who got himself into all kind of financial trouble and legal trouble. And he said that he heard a voice say, hey, you could kill yourself. You could look at that ceiling fan up there and hang yourself on it, and that'd be the end of all your troubles. And as soon as I read that, I said, well, that's a demon telling him that. Not Satan himself, but a demon. Probably a pretty big demon, pretty high up demon, but it was a demon nonetheless. And this man said he had written books on deliverance. He had cast out demons himself. He knew all about demons, and yet he was still being tempted by one. At any rate, we do not have to pay attention to such deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons because they deceive the doctrines of demons means that these people were teaching things that were demonically inspired. Now here's a verse which I did mention showing that last days does not necessarily have to do with the end of the world. In fact, most of the time doesn't. In fact, I can't even think of a time right off the top of my head when it does refer to the end of the world, but I'll leave that possibility out there. Hebrews 1-2 says, In these last days, God in these last days has spoken to us in his son, has spoken in his son through Christ coming at his first advent. And these were called the last days by the author of Hebrews. So there that proves very easily, very quickly that last days does not all the time mean the end of the world. Now, as I said earlier, a warning about false teachers happening at the end of the world is not going to mean a thing to Timothy because Timothy is not operating at the end of the world. Ellison says that it's warning Timothy uh, of the end of the Jewish age, at, at the end of the Jewish age in Paul's current time, and also at the end of the world, both at the same time, which I find that kind of hard to believe. It's kind of splitting the difference. Well, we don't want to offend anybody, so we're going we're not going to take we're not going to be a Calvinist. We're not going to be an Arminian. We're going to be a Calminian. No, it's talking about at the end of the Jewish age. In my humble opinion. Now, this phrase, the faith, Paul says. 
In later times, some will fall away from the faith. That means the objective uh, system of Christian doctrine, if you will, the objective Christian faith. They're going to leave Christianity. It does not say they're going to fall away from their faith. If it said that, that would mean they could lose their salvation. It doesn't say they're going to fall away from their personal belief in Jesus. It's just going to say they fall away from the teaching of Christians. I mean, I just saw a news article this morning. Norma McCovey, the lady that was the Jane Doe in the famous, the infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1970, whenever it was, and she, right before she died, she confessed. She says, I never was pro-life. I was paid off to, to be pro-life, and I don't mean it. Well, she also claimed to be evangelical Christian. So let's just say, I don't know if she did, but let's just say she renounced that too. Did she lose her salvation? No. She never had it to start with. She's a hypocrite. I mean, after all, people that murder babies, they can lie too, and they can take briberies. That's not too hard to say. Of course, I don't know what it says for the Christians who offered her the money, I think what they said is, well, we, she was in financial need, so we were helping her out. And so she, you know, that's this old story of rice Christians. You get missionaries on the field. They say these people are hungry. Christians have a heart to give. And so they say, we're going to help them. And then it turns out they're not really interested in Christianity. They're interested in the rice. And that could have been what happened with Norma McCovey. She was not interested in being a Christian or being pro-life, but she was hungry. She needed the money. So somebody got suckered on that deal. Now notice that these people who fell away from the faith, they were paying attention. That means they were focused on, there wasn't a momentary delusion. They consciously apostatized. They consciously walked away from the faith. First Timothy 4.2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. You know, this gentleman, this famous missionary guy was talking about how people had said a bunch of lies about him. And he said he was going to respond the way Paul responded in Second Corinthians with love. I said, Paul responding in love? Well, I haven't gone through Second Corinthians again to see all the nasty things he said about the people that were opposing him. But let's look and see what he says about the nasty people that are opposing him in First Timothy 4, 2. And let's, let, let me hear you talk about love. Well, first of all, he calls them hypocrite, hypocritical liars right here by means of the hypocrisy of, of liars. He's talking about these false teachers. In other words, they weren't just teaching the false teaching because they sincerely believed it. They were doing it to seduce people, not actually believing the false doctrine they're teaching, which makes it even worse, if you ask me. Well, I don't know if it's worse. It's just bad. So here's some examples of both bad character and bad teaching that these false teachers were doing there in Ephesus, as Paul points out through his through First Timothy. They're teaching strange doctrines, verse First Timothy 1, 3, 6, 3. They are teaching myths and genealogies, verse 4 in chapter 1. They're engaged in fruitless discussion, chapter 6, verse 1. They're making confident assertions about which they don't understand, chapter 1, 7, chapter 6, 4. They're hypocritical liars. That's this verse we just looked at. The next verse, we're going to see that they forbid marriage and they abstain. Uh, they tell the Christians to abstain from food. And the next verse after that, or in chapter verse 7 and chapter 4, they're preaching fables. In chapter 6, verse 4, he says they're conceited. In verse 4, chapter 6, he says they have a morbid interest in controversial questions. In verse 5, in chapter 6, he says they cause constant friction. In verse 20 through 21, they have a false knowledge. In chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 21, they have gone astray from the faith. Now, this list does not even include what he talked about, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And where is that chapter? I think it's the end of chapter 2. 
And also, if you go back and look, pick up what he said about Hymenaeus and Philetus in Second Timothy, he called them gangrenous, shipwreckers of the faith, blasphemers. Yeah, love. Whenever I hear people talking about love, when you're dealing with false doctrine, it reminds me of that famous song that Tina Turner sang. What's love got to do with this? I remember hyperpeters, heretics, all the time used that on me when I got in a big controversy with them because a friend of mine was had hyperpeters, heretics, were tearing up his church. And they would write things about Dan Trotter doesn't have any love. Love. We just want us to all get along. And I just used the example of Paul. I said, really? I said, so what kind of love does Paul have toward heretics, including hyperpeters, heretics, like Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander that Paul mentions in First and Second Timothy? And so this, going back to the story of this missionary statesman who's talking about how all the Christians who were attacking him didn't show love, well, at first it was very appealing, but then I went and read and started looking at the other side of the issue and all the facts involved in the case. It wasn't so clear to me that the man was entirely innocent, but he was using the love defense. So that's what I'm saying. You hear people start talking about love and trying to point their, uh, to point their fingers at people who are saying that there's skullduggery going on, the whistleblowers in the church. And they point, and, and the accused starts pointing their fingers, and they use the love defense. You don't love me. No, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear facts. Show me where they're wrong. So Paul continues. He says that these false teachers, these hypocritical liars, are seared in their own consciousness. Seared, the Greek word for seared, is like being cauterized. In fact, we get the, the English word cauterized from the Greek word. The flesh grows callous and hard until there's no feeling left. All the nerve endings are burnt up. And this is what happens to these false teachers. Their own conscience, it's that like the nerve endings of their conscience gets burned up and so the conscience doesn't feel anything anymore. Doesn't care anymore. That's what's happened to all these people who want to murder babies. They don't care anymore. They just want to kill and kill and kill and kill. And you can't tell them anything. You mention to them something about them being baby killers and they get upset. Well, I guess if they, well, maybe they do have some conscience left because if they get upset with you, but it, it keeps on going pretty soon. They don't care anymore. Seared as with a branding iron. There's your metaphor. You took a, you put a branding iron on, on a cow's skin, and pretty soon the nerves get burnt up, and the cow doesn't feel it anymore. We go now to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Men, still referring to the false teachers, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, this is from this we get the idea that these false heretics are Gnostics because Gnostics thought the body was evil and they were hooked up with Judaism too because Judaism loves to abstain from foods too. No shrimp, no pork. And so we'll just call this the Jewish slash Gnostic heresy of some sort. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. It's all right to eat. It's all right to get married. all right to have sex with your wife or your husband. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. And that, of course, means everything created by God is good if used properly. Sex is good, but it's not good if you want to fornicate with a cow. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Now, the false teachers say they forbid marriage. Paul, on the other hand, allows marriage very clearly first timothy 3 2 and overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife see nothing wrong with elders being married first timothy 3 12 deacons must be husbands of only one wife marriage there first timothy 3 first timothy 5 9 a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old having been the wife of one man 
Now, Paul one time in 1 Corinthians 7 said it's good for people to remain as I because of the present distress, but that was because of the present distress. And then, then he says, nevertheless, not I. And nevertheless, basically, that's my opinion. If you want to get married, go ahead and do it. He, he has nothing against marriage. But these false teachers are saying, well, we don't want to get married because that would mean you would have sex, and sex is bad. It's evil. These false teachers advocated abstaining from foods which God has made. Now, Paul doesn't mention eating food like pork and shrimp, like like in Peter's vision on the way to Cornelius' house. But he does talk about wine, and that's that's a drink if it's not food. First Timothy 3.3 says the elder must not be addicted to wine, which shows that it's, he didn't say the elder should not drink wine, but he said should be addicted to wine. First Timothy 3.8, deacons should not be addicted to much wine, which means they could drink some, but just don't drink too much. First Timothy 5.23, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. So there you could use wine medicinally. So Paul was not an ascetic like his opponents were. God has created sex. He's created wine. He's created food. We need to be grateful for that, and we need to share in it. All of, the, all of us who believe and know the truth need to enjoy what God has given us. And, of course, Paul, when he says the truth, he's referring to the liars, the hypocritical liars that he mentioned in the previous verse, too. For everything created by God is good, and nothing needs to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. And, of course, the assumption there is created by God is good if it's used in a proper and lawfully, lawful way. He's not talking about fire ants and things such as that which are not good. He's talking about things that you can eat, not a problem. Let's talk about how the creation is good. And the Gnostics would always say that creation is bad. It was not created by the supreme God. It was created by a junior God, a demiurge, trying to get the evil creation separated as much as possible from the one true good God. But Christianity is very clear that the creation is a good thing. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Romans 14.14, 14, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Nothing is unclean in itself. It's only unclean if you think it's unclean, but it's not unclean in itself per se. Romans 14.20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. First. Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me. 1 Corinthians 10.23, everything is permissible. Genesis 9.3, every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. That's God speaking. Now, of course, there are limitations on this. You don't want to eat a good thing if it causes somebody to stumble like idle meat and all that. And of course, we're not talking about that right now. Basically, we're talking about the God created food. Good, and we ought not to get all hung up on what you eat. I tell you, you go to China, and you learn very fast. You better not have too many taboos about what to eat, or you're going to starve to death. I remember the first time facing a thousand-year egg. It's an egg that's been soaked in soy sauce and vinegar for approximately a thousand years. At least it looks like it. And you eat that thing, and you think your eyeballs are going to fly out of your sockets. You say, oh, my gosh. How about the scorpions with little tails? stuck up in the air, which are delicacies in Hong Kong. How about the monkey brains down there? How about I talked to a guy, a Christian guy, in the south of China where they eat everything, and I was saying, man, I'm down here, I believe people even eat rats, and I was just joking. He said, oh, yeah, I've eaten rats. They're very good. Tastes like chicken. Almost passed out on the floor. And, of course, the cats and the dogs that they routinely eat, eat down there in Guangzhou. It's been banned now, I think, because of the coronavirus. Ooh, I bet that's a cultural shock. But at any rate... God has given us the... Oh, I've eaten donkey meat before. No, somebody gets fed it, sent it to me, fed it to me, and I didn't know. In fact, I lived right down the street one time in Beijing from a restaurant that was specialized in donkey meat. The only thing they sold was donkey meat served up different ways. 
So we need to get over a lot of stuff about what we can eat and what we cannot eat. First Timothy 4, 6, Paul continues instructing Timothy, If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Point these things out is in the middle voice, according to Ellison, and so it gives the idea of suggest. If you suggest these things to the brothers, Timothy is told to gently, not harshly, correct the brothers. Now, he's really dealing with some nasty heretics. Now, Ellison's saying that, and Paul is saying here, suggest these things to the brothers. Don't pay attention to these teachers. He's not talking about dealing directly with the heretics. You don't deal gently with heretics. You snuff them out. Paul never suggests that Timothy speak gently when he was when Timothy was directly addressing heretics, if he ever did. And also, we need to balance this out, too, because Paul later in 1 Timothy 4.11 says, command and teach these things. Now, that verse, I think, I think that's parangelo, the Greek is there, if I remember correctly. It can also mean to instruct and teach these things. So maybe that translation is a little harsh. We'll talk about that translation when we get there. So I think we can summarize here is pointing these things out to the brothers is not beating them over the head with it and say, obey me, or you're going to be disliked by God the way some people like to teach. You know, you've got to teach gently when you're dealing with people who are willing to listen to the truth. Now, if you're dealing with heretics, that's a different thing. If you're dealing with a terrible doctrine, like there's no resurrection of the dead, or there's four p- persons in the Trinity, or Gnosticism, or whatever it is, you've got to be a little bit stronger. Jesus was certainly strong with the Pharisees. He called them snakes, brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. Little Jesus, meek and mild. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 9, But have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has a limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Silly myths. Well, of course, the myths, we don't know exactly what these myths are. If I was immersed in Jewish literature as John Gill was, I'm sure I could give you some examples of silly myths. Other translations of silly are Old Wise Fables, King James, the Mace New Testament, Groundless Fables, Montgomery Translation, Old Womanish Myths, the New American Bible, Silly Myths, same as here, same as Home and Christian Study Bible, and then the New American Standard Bible has Worldly Fables Fit Only for Old Women. Old Wives Tales, we used to call them. It's like a the old women were getting a bad rap here. They were the ones that spread all these old myths, apparently, from all these translations. Here's some other scriptures that Paul warns against these myths. 1 Timothy 1.4, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Titus 1.14, they may not pay attention to Jewish myths. 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths. People love myths. Mythology. Read Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, myths are everywhere. And the Jews had their own myths, and Paul says they're irreverent. They detract from God's glory, and they're silly. They're stupid. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Now, train, that means athletic training. That's what the word means. It means strenuous, dedicated, priority effort. In other words, you put first effort on what you're doing. You train before you eat. You train before you sleep. Mature Christians don't just happen overnight. Ladies and gentlemen, they've got to be developed, and there's got to be personal, godly, spiritual training to get there. And these Christians who think they can just raise their hand in a youth group meeting and say, I believe in Jesus, and then don't read the Bible, don't go to church, don't find other Christian disciples, 
a, a, a Christian, more mature Christian brothers who can take care of them or mature sisters who can take care of them. You don't do all that, you're not going to grow. Now these training metaphors, Paul liked these. First Corinthians nine twenty four through 27, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. There's that ugly word, discipline. We have to discipline ourselves if we're going to be disciples of Christ, especially leaders in the in the body of Christ. And of course, Timothy was a leader. Second Timothy two five. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Second Timothy four seven. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So there's boxing metaphor, running metaphor. Hebrews twelve one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So life is not a bed of roses, folks. It's an athletic training ground. It's a track that you got to run around. It's a boxing match that you got to sit there and get some, take some blows in the face. And it takes training to get through it. I mentioned these silly myths. Let me go back and pick up a quote from Adam Clark. Quote, This seems to refer particularly to the Jews whose Talmudical writings are stuffed with the most ridiculous and profane fables that ever disgraced the human intellect. And I wish you to give me an example of one so I could give it to you, but he didn't, and I didn't have time to go look through the Talmud to find one. But I'm sure they were pretty silly, as he said. Now, this idea of training for godliness, Paul says in this verse, verse 8, 1 Timothy 4, the training of the body has a limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way. The idea of godliness is everywhere through the pastoral epistles. It's a big emphasis. It's used 16 times in First and Second Timothy and Titus. In various grammatical forms, godliness is everywhere. And so this is what Paul is encouraging his younger workers to do, his co-workers, Timothy and Titus. Be godly. That's what we should always be exhorting our disciples. Be godly, or our children, be godly. He says physical training is of limited benefit. Spiritual training has eternal benefits, but physical training only has a limited benefit. Only physical, because you're going to die, you're going to end up in a coffin and all that training. I don't care how many, I don't care how flat your abs look, I don't care how big your biceps are, you're going to be a shriveled up corpse, stuffed with embalming fluid, and there's not a thing you can do to stop that. So physical training is limited benefit. However, it still has benefit. We shouldn't use this verse as an excuse to avoid exercise. Now, I don't know if you're like me, I love to avoid exercise. It's always a great excuse. Well, I can't ride my bike today, it's raining. Oh, I got up late. Oh, I got to read my Bible. I got to pray. I can't exercise. So, no, we should still exercise. After all, the body is good. It was not evil like the Gnostics were saying. Now, gymnastic exercise had an extraordinary hold on the Greek mind. All you have to do is read Greek history. They're constantly talking about the gymnasium where they went down there naked and trained and, and trained and trained and trained for the Olympics. And then to get the, I forgot the name of the, I forgot the name of the instrument they used to scrape the oil off of the body that they used to train with. So they'd be slippery. Socrates would go down to the gym and engage in philosophical discussions while they watched the naked men run around training. And Jameson Fawson Brown suggests that Timothy might even be a person who liked to do this, who liked to physically train. And so Paul is trying to say, hey, Timothy, now, you know, training is one thing, but remember, godliness is even better. 
I don't know if that's true or not. That's interesting speculation. Now, Paul says that what he says is a saying. He loves sayings here in the pastoral epistles. I think I read somewhere in a previous audio, I mentioned that there were six sayings. I think it was in 1 Timothy. It might have been First and Second Timothy. I can't remember. But here's another one. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. So Christians were putting together little sayings, little proverbs, and spreading them around for teaching. The this saying here is not clear what the this is referring to. It could be the saying that godliness is beneficial in every way, or in verse 8, or it could be the next verse, verse 10, which says, we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. So we're not sure what the saying is, but whatever it was, whether it's verse 8 or verse 10, it's trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. We move on now to 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. Paul continues, for it is for this we labor and strive. For what? Godliness. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. This training for godliness, we labor and strive. Just like you have to train to run a race in the Olympics, you have to labor and strive to do that too. Now that phrase, labor and strive, is constantly used by covenant theologians who hate the Keswick movement, and they, which emphasizes Christ in you, doing the work, and... So they constantly quote these things. And most of the time when Paul says labor and strive, he says, nevertheless, it's not I, but Jesus who lives in me. And he doesn't hear, but that's what he means. There's nothing wrong with laboring and striving, but you got to realize that you labor and strive only in, in accordance with Jesus' will and only in, only in accordance with his power. Jesus tells you what he wants done as opposed to what you want done. Jesus prepares the situation. He prepares the timing and so forth so that you can get the job done. He mortifies through his Holy Spirit. He mortifies your flesh in areas that would keep the job from getting done. I can't tell you how important that is. If you so, In fact, I was just talking. I just heard the story about a young pastor, a very successful pastor. He's 31 years old, and he was doing all kinds of good stuff, and he's all the time constantly wishes he can do more. And the next thing you know, he's married, but he found another woman. Because he just couldn't do enough for God. And so he just gave up. Laboring and striving in the flesh produces failure, guilt, and condemnation. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. So please, let's don't misuse this verse for we labor and strive. Now, there's nothing wrong with laboring and striving. As long as it's Jesus doing the work in you. Because apart from Jesus, you can do what? You can do nothing, as Jesus said in John 15. But with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, you can labor and strive to work with him. It's synergism after you get saved. It's monergism before you get saved because his Holy Spirit has to regenerate you. But once you get saved, you have the Holy Spirit working with you. So it's synergism. You work together with the Holy Spirit, and it should be a balance. You should talk about what you have to do, your responsibilities. You shouldn't be passive and irresponsible and undisciplined. But on the other hand, you better emphasize that it's Jesus doing the work, not you. Now, we labor and strive, Paul says in verse 10, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, that is a controversial passage. It's involved in a lot of controversy. First of all, the Savior of all men, does that mean that everybody's saved? Are we universalists now? There's no hell? There's no condemnation for sin? Well, of course not. That's absolute poppycock. Well, let's look at how Calvinists interpret this verse. They say that Jesus is the Savior of all men in the sense that he saves them physically or naturally. As Ellison and John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown put it, God is the protector and provider of all life on earth. He's the Savior of all men. He gives life to all men. 
And the especially helps prove that because he's making a distinction between saving in a temporal sense and a physical sense all men. But especially does he save believers because they get saved in a spiritual sense. And I think that the Calvinists are exactly right about that. Here's some scriptures talking about how God saves all men. Matthew 5:45, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's why Christians ought not to get too cocky about they ought not to get too cocky about unbelievers who are blessed because God does bless unbelievers. This verse says so. We also not ought not to have the idea because God is blessing unbelievers that He approves of their unrighteousness. Of course, that's not true either. Acts seventeen twenty eight. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also are His children. So Paul admits to the Greeks. I forgot which poet that was. It might be Menander. Anyway, whoever it was, the poet, Greek poet said, "We are also his children." That means that God is the in creation. God is the Father of all. Now, in adoption, spiritual adoption, He's only the Father of Christians, because as a creator, yeah, God created all His children. But when we're talking about a spiritual relationship, Jesus said, "You are of your father, the devil." So the devil is the father of non-believers spiritually. That is a distinction that a lot of people don't make, and they should. Gill summarizes this view up about being the savior of all men physically. Quote, giving them being and breath, upholding them in their beings, preserving their lives, and indulging them with the blessings and mercies of life. For that, he is the savior of all men. With a spiritual and everlasting salvation is not true in fact. That's the Calvinist view. Now, let me give you an Arminian view from Adam Clark, who is an Arminian himself. He says that the Savior of all men refers to saving all men spiritually with eternal life. Eternal life that comes from being born again. And you say, wait a minute. That can't make any sense. Clark's not a universalist. How could believers be especially saved that way? He's the Savior of all men, especially believers. Well, if he's the Savior of all men, especially believers, there's no distinction between believers that subset of of men who are believers, no distinction between that and the big the big set of human beings in general. That makes no sense. This especially makes no sense. Here's what Clark says: God has provided salvation for the whole human race and has freely offered it to them by His Word and by His Spirit. That way, He's the Savior for all men by offering the salvation, not by actually getting them saved. So this is how Clark explains that word: especially God intended salvation for all, but actually gave it to only Christians. Well, then the Armenian runs into that typical Armenian problem, so Clark is forced to believe that God didn't get what he intended. He intended to save everybody, but oops, his intention got frustrated because people didn't believe. The omnipotent God is frustrated in, in his intentions and in his purpose by the obstreperous will of man. Well, you can take it however you want. I believe the Calvinists have got the best of that argument. Is the Savior of all men. Now, whenever you see all, you've got to decide, is this all without exception? Every individual person on earth... Or is it all without distinction, all groups of men, Jews and Gentiles, generally the distinction? Or sometimes it can mean many, a, a great majority of men. Well, I don't think that affects the Calvinist-Armenian argument here one way or the other. You can take it however you want. He's the savior of all groups of men, of the Jews, the Gentiles, the Outer-Mongolians, the French, the Germans, the English. He gives them rain, even though they're unsaved. He lets the sun and the rain fall on them even though they're unjust, but he especially saves Germans and French and Outer Mongolians of those of those uh, ethnic groups who believe. So it doesn't really make any difference how the argument goes. 
the distinction is is whether he's the savior temporally, materially of all men, and then spiritually of believers. That's the best way to interpret that verse. We go to verse 11. Paul tells Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Now that word prescribed, I told you I was going to mention in a little while, is from the Greek word, it is the translation of the Greek word parangelo, which means to give, one definition is to give strict military orders, as Ellison points out. And in fact, the Holman Christian Study Bible backs that up with its translation, 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. Ooh, that sounds like Timothy's really being a forthright leader. Prescribe is the word that the New American Standard Bible uses, prescribe and teach these things. So the argument goes, the church is full of false teachers, so you've got to really be hard and teach these anti-Gnostic true teachings of Christ that I'm giving you. However, there's another definition of this word parangelo. This is from Thayer's lexicon. It says to transmit a message, to declare, to announce. So it could be declare and teach these things. Just tell them. Tell them the truth, not command them. But tell them, announce to them. So I think Ellison's stating a little bit too much. I mean, it's a possible translation, but it's not a, it's not a complete, it's not a necessary translation. Now let's look at some other scriptures to flesh this out a little bit. In First Timothy one three, Paul tells Timothy, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct that's parangales certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's a subjunctive form of parangelo. So is it that you may command certain men not to teach strange doctrines or that you may instruct? Well, here the NASB translates this exact same word as instruct and not prescribe. How about 1 Timothy 1.18? This command, parangelion, this command is a noun form of the same verb. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. But in 1 Timothy 1.8, that's the New American Standard Bible translation. But in 1 Timothy 1.18, the Holman Christian Standard Bible Translation, we read this, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction. So in the same word is translated as command in the New American Standard Bible and, and translated instruction in the Holman Christian Study Bible. So we can't squeeze too much out of that English word prescribe and command. It might be just instruct because generally, you know, you've got to be a little bit, you can't just go around bossing people around saying you've got to believe this. Paul says, prescribe and teach or instruct and teach these things. In verse 11, what things? Well, it could be the rejection of silly myths that he's just mentioned, or it could be true godliness that he's talking about. That's kind of generally what he was talking about. Don't listen to silly myths, but, listen, but pursue godliness. 1 Timothy 4.12, let, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Once again, I didn't, I don't have this in my notes, but it just occurred to me. This is one more example of how Paul loves to talk about examples. He usually talks about himself being an example to the flock. Imitate me even as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, I think it is. But here he says, Timothy, you show yourself an example so that people can imitate you. So Paul was mentoring Timothy, and then Timothy was to mentor the Ephesian Christians. He tells Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now, People always imagine here, oh, it's a teenager. A teenager running the church at Ephesus who's been on a missionary journey with Paul for at least 16 years. Paul picked him up at Lystra about, if you look at the dates of the second journey and the dates, the suggested dates of 1 Timothy, it's about 16 years apart. The dates might be off a year or two, but it's roughly 16 years. So Paul, even if Paul picked up Timothy as young as 16 years old, which I highly doubt, that would mean he's in his 30s now in Ephesus and somebody's looking down on his youthfulness in his 30s. 
probably because the false teachers were in their 50s or their 60s, and people thought that old men like back then knew more than young men, and so they were making fun of him or telling the Ephesians Christians, don't listen to this, this whippersnapper Timothy. Well, Timothy could have been up to the age of 40, actually, because in Roman and Greek culture, the word that's used here, the Greek word, could refer to a man of up to age 40, as Ellison, the commentator, says. Now, let me read you a quote from an apologetics website, Evidence Unseen. Quote, the Greek term for youth is neotes. In this culture, someone could be called a youth until they were 40 years old. According to Irenaeus, the famous church father operating in Lyon, France, according to Irenaeus, 30 is the first stage of a young man's age and extends to 40, as all will admit. Earl comments the word for youth, that's the KGV, is neotes, used of grown-up military age extending to the 40th year. Now, further quote from Evidence Unseen Apologetics website, Paul picked up Timothy on his second missionary journey. That's Acts 16.1. First Timothy was written 14 years later. I think I said 16. No, it was 14 years later, somewhere around there. If Timothy was 16 years old when Paul first worked with him, he would be at least 30 at this point. Paul probably gave this command because older men were considered to be wiser than men in their 30s, and he wanted to encourage Timothy to stand up for himself. I think that Paul probably picked up Timothy later than 16. Even, let's say he's 18. Okay, so he's now 34 years old. That's relatively young. But it doesn't mean he's a teenager. So the idea that you have teenagers leading your church, unless you have a bunch of junior high school people in the church, I would suggest you do that. It's a dumb idea. Paul never says don't put a young man as an elder in a church. He never says that. He says don't put a new convert. But if you got the choice, you get you put the gray hairs up there faster than the young the young people because this is what, you know, I deal with college students all the time, and also I used to be young myself, and I think of all the idiotic, stupid things I did. And so this is what, I, whenever I hear some young person doing something stupid, Christians, I say, well, and a lot of times I do it to their face. I say, let me ask you a question. You know how to spell youth? No, how do you spell youth? S-T-U-P-I-D. At the end of verse 12, Paul says, rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. That could be Paul's subjective, excuse me, Timothy's subjective faith, his belief in Christ, and his purity. He's supposed to be pure in in morals as well as teaching. Adam Clark says the purity there refers to Timothy's chastity of body and mind. A young man like Timothy, Timothy might be tempted by the fairer sex more. I guess Timothy wasn't married. He's in his 30s, not married yet. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful passions. There's one more indication that Timothy... Might be single and younger. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, think about this. It's really hard to believe a teacher who's teaching something like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and then the, you know that the teacher is fornicating with the secretary. It makes you want to think, no, I don't believe 2 plus 2 equals 4. Nothing that worries that that's just the way people are. People tend to not believe something when an idiot, when an immoral person is teaching. I mean, if Adolf Hitler came in the room and told you that 2 plus 2 equals 4, you're likely going to think, well, I'm not so sure about that. People are not philosophers. A philosopher can make the distinction. A philosopher will say, well, I'm not going to use an ad hominem argument like that. I'm only going to look at the facts. But the average run-of-the-mill person is not a philosopher. They do not think their way through arguments that clearly. So you need to be, have a good example, Paul tells Timothy. 
verses 13 and 14 in 1 Timothy 4. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Now, Paul tells Timothy to give attention to public reading. The word public is not in the Greek. The New American Standard Bible has it in italics. Some versions just have give attention to the reading, KJV, NAB, MACE. So John Gill says Paul could have been exhorting Timothy to pay attention to his private reading of Scripture. And Adam Clark says it could be private and public. Homer Christian Study Bible doesn't put it in brackets or italics. It just says public reading because they think that that's what the word means there. I looked the Greek up to be sure, and sure enough, there is no adjective. It just has te anagnose, the reading. No public reading. But public reading was done in synagogues, and the practice was probably carried over the churches, and so it's probably a good guess that Paul is telling Timothy, read the scriptures, read the letters I send you, read them to the churches. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. Now, Paul might be saying, Timothy, you've been neglecting your gift, and so you need to do better. Or it could be he's just saying, don't neglect it in the future, even though you're doing it well right now. Let's just give Timothy the benefit of the doubt and say, Timothy's doing fine with that gift, whatever it is. And he doesn't, he's just being warned to, to keep it up. Now, this gift, it was given to you through prophecy. Well, what's the gift? Well, here are some options. It could be the gift of being an elder, either as a, or, or an apostle, a church leader of some sort, like apostle and elder. The context suggests this, in my opinion, because Paul says, pay attention to public reading, to exhortation and teaching. Well, exhortation and teaching is what elders do and what apostles do, too. So when he immediately says, do not neglect the gift that's in you, I assume it's the gift of being an elder. Now, other people suggest, like Gil says, the gift of the Holy, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that was in you, Timothy. Uh, Adam Clark says it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues and prophecy and miracles and so forth. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett Brown say it's the gift of an evangelist that's in him. Jameson Fawcett Brown suggests that a sermon of spirits is in him. Well, all that's possible, but I think the context determines it's talking about be a be a be a be a leader to these churches, be an apostle to these. Ephesian house churches that, that are under your ministry here. Now, verse 14 says, This gift was given to you through prophecy. We read that in 1 Timothy 1.18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by him you, be, you may strongly engage in battle. Now, what that prophecy is, who gave that prophecy, and when was it? Well, here's some options. Ellison said it was at Lystra when Paul first picked up Timothy, Acts 16.2. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. And so since Timothy's spiritual gift was recognized by the local church leaders at Lystra, that's probably when he was prophesied over to be a church leader and, and an apostle or an elder. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. So at some point in that long association between Paul and Timothy, Paul laid hands on Timothy and prophesied over him, and imparted some gift to him, or prayed for some gift to be imparted to Timothy by God. Ellison says the exact time, mechanism, or number of gifts is not revealed, and that expresses what I just said. Nobody knows. I'm just giving you a guess that it's talking about the gift of, gift of being an apostle, or gift of being an elder. Now, the laying on of hands that's mentioned here in verse 14, the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Let's talk about the council of elders. Presbytery is the Greek word. When did that happen? Nobody knows. What's this laying on of hands? Well, laying on of hands seems to be the dedication practiced by the New Testament church. For example, in Acts 6, 6, then they had them stand before the apostles. This is the seven table servers. They stood before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. 
Acts 13.3. That was table service. Some people call them deacons, but it doesn't say they were deacons. Acts 13.3, then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them, that's Barnabas and Saul, off on the first missionary journey. And that would be the other prophets and teachers at Antioch laid hands on Barnabas and Saul. 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. I just read you that verse. So we see, as Ellison points out, there is much lack of uniformity in who did the laying on of hands. It could be apostles in Acts 6, prophets and teachers in Acts 13, local elders in 1 Timothy 4, or Paul himself in 2 Timothy 1.6. And Ellison continues, quote, This diversity and ambiguity illustrate the lack of organization in the first century church. The New Testament is simply not written to advocate an ordinational procedure. Hear, hear, Mr. Ellison. I agree with that. Here's another quote from Ellison. Ordination has developed from an unofficial affirmation of giftedness and a prayerful commitment to a specific ministry task into an elaborate high-walled elitism. Oh, so-and-so is getting ordained. Oh, he's got to go through the Presbyterian passes his exams, I forgot what the Presbyterians call that, synodical exams, whatever, before he can get ordained, he's got to go through the big exam position, he's got to be interrogated. Continuing with Ellison's quote, this concept must be changed, this paradigm must be reevaluated, this unbiblical development, this unbiblical development must be challenged. Modern Christianity has based so much tradition and elitism on such a small biblical base. So where is the authority in clear New Testament passages? passages to end quote to come up with all this ordination nonsense that you see churches doing now going back to this reading I, I mentioned whether it was public or not but i didn't talk about what the reading was here's some options adam clark says is the old testament scripture timothy pay attention to reading the old testament scripture either privately or publicly or it could be other books but there weren't many other books around in that era it could be letters circulating through the church written by various apostles that's my speculation as to what this reading might be one other final point before i move on the council of elders that laid hands on timothy that is mentioned in this verse i wondered whether that was a good translation i looked it up it's presbyterian presbyterian which theos translates as a senate body of elders presbytery council so i guess that's a good translation it sounds so institutional to me that's why i don't like it body of elders is the one translation i would prefer 1 Timothy 4:15 through 16 Paul continues exhorting Timothy practice these things be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all pay close attention to your life and your teaching persevere in these things for by doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers now when Paul tells Timothy to be committed to them committed means to be engrossed and wholly absorbed in those things not just playing around with it if you want to be a church leader you can't just play around with Christianity he says, Paul says, I want your progress, that, you, that your progress may be evident to all. Paul is very concerned about Timothy's reputation. And I've already mentioned in a previous audio how Paul was very concerned about the church's reputation in general, what outsiders might think about the church. Here, he is concerned about Timothy's reputation. Here's some other scriptures that show that. 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, and that includes outsiders. 1 Timothy 3, 7, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders. 1 Timothy 3, 10, and they, elders, must also be tested first if they prove blameless, or deacons, if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. That's, well, that's reputations with the church, I guess. 1 Timothy 5, 7, and 8, command this also so they won't be blamed, so nobody can point their finger at them. 
That means providing for your own, take care of your household. First Timothy 5.14, Therefore I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. I was just mentioning this financial situation of this missionary who's done an awful lot of good work in the world. He's one of the, the most prominent evangelical missionaries there was, and yet he was accused all over the place, and it took him a lot of time to defend himself. million-dollar accounting firm had to be hired to prove that the money was went where it was supposed to. You, know, you can't even give people a handle to accuse you, accuse you. You've got to make everything above board, and you need to constantly think, what if somebody accuse me of this? Can I justify where that money is or how it was raised? Or can I defend myself if I'm in a courtroom? That's the way Christians ought to be thinking, not just say, well, nobody will ever do that to me. Your reputation is extremely important. It's real easy. It's real difficult to build up a good reputation. It's real easy to lose it. So Paul says, everybody will see your progress, Timothy. Again, because Timothy is modeling himself. He's an example to all the believers, as I just said in the previous verse. In verse 16, we'll finish it up. Pay close attention to your life. Your life means your conduct. First Timothy 4.12, which is in this chapter a few verses earlier, he said, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers in speech and in conduct. So not only what you say, but what you do, how you live your life is to be as an example. Pay attention close to your life and your teaching. So both is important, how you live and how you teach, how you walk and how you talk. Persevere in these things. As Ellison points out, if someone perseveres in good walking and good talking and good life and conduct and good teaching, well, then you know he is a believer. By your fruits you shall know them. For by doing this, persevering in all these good things, for by doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. That shows that salvation is not just at the point of justification, not just at the point of becoming born again, but salvation also includes the process of sanctification. And Paul is telling Timothy, you will continue to save yourself in the sense of you will continue to sanctify yourself yourself and the people who you're listening to now paul is exhorting this which means it's impossible it's possible to be done paul wouldn't be asking timothy to do something that's impossible and application to us we ought to do the same thing ladies and gentlemen i am now finished with first timothy 4 in first timothy 5 paul will continue giving instructions on how timothy should behave in the household of faith, and more specifically, how he should be a leader in the household of faith. We'll take that up in our next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>